today, my name is Steve, by the way. Uh, good to see all you guys, yes. Um, today we're continuing in the book of Esther, and we are going to, in fact, finish the book of Esther. And so today's text is going to come from Esther chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, and it's the very last verses of the book. Hear the word of the Lord. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of, chron of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, as I mentioned, for the last several weeks, we've been going through the book of Esther, and today we come to its conclusion, and it is a magnificent conclusion. Uh, but at the same time, it can be a little bit troubling to our modern ears to see how the story resolves itself. And so, in order to get there, in order to get to the text that I just read, uh, we need to set the stage a little bit. So let me remind you of the story as we've heard it up to this point. So at this point in history that Esther takes place, the Jews are living in Persia in exile. They are defeated. They, have, they are living there um, in a diaspora. And so the story opens up with a royal feast thrown by this Persian king that we just read about. And what he wants to do during this, after many days of feasting, he decides he wants to parade his wealth and his largesse in front of all of his guests. And so he does so. And as the crowning moment of his exhibition of his own greatness, he decides that he wants to bring his wife, Queen Vashti, out to parade her beauty before the whole gathering as well. But something kind of astonishing happens. She refuses the king's wish and therefore shames him in front of his guests. And so the king gathers his advisors and says, what do I do as a result of this? And the advisors say, well, let's boot the queen and get a new queen. She can't do that. And so it's here that we're introduced to our heroes, Mordecai and Esther. Both of these people are Jews living in exile. And as it happens, Esther, for her surpassing beauty, is chosen as one of the candidates for the queen's replacement. Um, and Mordecai, her uncle, helps give her advice uh, as she is navigating this process. And all the while, while that's going on, inside the king's palace, we're also introduced to the villain of the story, namely Haman. Haman is the king's right-hand man, and it seems like he has this inordinate desire for others to praise him, and all the folks of the kingdom scratch this itch by bowing to him every time he walks through the city, all the folks that is except for Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman because Haman is an Agagite, which means almost nothing to us, but for them, they, the Jews had this ancient rivalry between themselves and the descendants of Agag. And so Mordecai refuses to bow to this descendant of Agag. And so as a result of Mordecai's defiance, Haman develops this sort of irrational hatred against Mordecai and by uh, virtue of who he represents, all of the Jews. Now, while all this is happening, Esther is made the queen. 
but she doesn't make her people known to the king because Mordecai instructed her not to. And when Mordecai discovers a plot on the life of the king and then reports it to Esther, who then reports it to the king, Mordecai's deeds are written down to be remembered and honored. Now, here's where things start picking up steam. Haman, the villain, devises a plot. Hopefully all this is review. Hopefully you've been following so far. Haman devises a plot to exterminate the Jews from the Persian kingdom, and the king goes ahead and signs off on that plan. But one night, the king can't sleep and is troubled in his dreams, and he just happens to wake up, needs some reading material, and so he gets the book in which Mordecai's deeds have been recorded, and he asks his advisors, what has been done to honor Mordecai? And so the king honors Mordecai with authority in front of all the kingdom, much to the horror of Haman, who longs for that kind of honor. And then Esther comes to the king at great risk to her life and tells the king of the plot that Haman devised to kill all of her people. And so she begs the king to reverse that law. But seeing as how, you know, to reverse a law is to admit wrongdoing, is to admit injustice, that, that, that was not possible, the king would not do that. And so he issues a second order saying that on the day when the armed forces arrive to exterminate the Jews that they were able, legally, to defend themselves. So they had royal sanction to take up arms. And so, when that day comes, watch what happens. This is chapter 9, verses 16 through 17. You're just going to have to listen to me. I, I don't have it up here, but just listen. Just. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and of gladness. So on that day... The Jews triumphed over their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who came against them. And then they gathered for a day of feasting and rejoicing. And that's essentially the end of the story. There's a few little appendices there, but that's essentially the end of the story. But this theme of God's people rejoicing over the destruction of their enemies is a theme that actually runs throughout the scriptures. And it's likely one of those themes that like presses our modern sensibilities to the point of like real stress um, and discomfort at best and at worst, disgust. I mean, if you've ever read the Psalms, like who among us has not been uncomfortable when we've traveled through those prayers and, and heard the psalmist crying out for judgment on their enemies? And just, just to make the point clearest, I reckon we ought to visit the, the starkest example of such um, call, calling for judgment in Psalm 137, verses 7 through 9. Listen, listen. Remember, O Lord... Against the Edomites on the day, the day of Jerusalem, how they laid it bare, lay it bare to its foundations. O oh, daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones 
and dashes them against the rock. If you've ever read the Psalms, you know that this is only the most extreme example of what I'm talking about. This this theme crops up over and over and over again in the Psalms. The psalmists seem to delight in the coming judgment of God against their enemies. And, And they believe, like with the deepest conviction, I mean, you know this if you've read it, that when he comes, he will judge those who have fought against his people and that the day of that judgment will be an occasion for rejoicing. And as the events of Esther roll out, they follow that exact same pattern. They say God in his sovereignty has given us the strength to kill 75,000 people. So let's establish a national holiday rejoicing over this and our deliverance. Now, I suppose that we could escape that pressure and escape the discomfort of that particular theme by relegating it to like some sort of barbarous Old Testament era theme. You know, it really has nothing to do with us in this new era in Christ. After all, I mean, once Christ came, isn't, isn't it now all, you know, kindness and grace and hugs and puppies? And I mean, isn't it, isn't that what the era of Christ is all about. The God of the Old Testament was cranky and vengeful, but Christ is meek and mild. And with his coming, all this violent triumph over God's enemies was sort of left behind and replaced with forgiveness and mercy. But if you've read the New Testament, you know that such thinking is not in line with the teaching even of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, rather than mitigating this theme of judgment, actually carries it on and intensifies it. Let me give you two examples. First, from Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 through 51. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But, here it is. If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, And will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I kind of want to stop there, but there's one more. There's one more. Because the stark, to me, the starkest New Testament example actually comes to us in the book of Revelation as John of Patmos relates his vision about the coming destruction of Babylon. And here, we see not only the destruction, but the rejoicing as well. So, so listen, Revelation chapter 18, starting in verse 17, he says, <clears throat> For in a single hour, all this wealth has been weighed, laid waste. He's talking about the destruction of Babylon. And all shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors, all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? 
and they threw dust on their heads, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, so saying, So Babylon will be the so Babylon the great city will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists and the musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and the craftsmen of any craft will we found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of the lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who had been slain on earth. Now it begins in chapter 19. Here comes the rejoicing. We often quote this passage uh, to each other here in the church, but we forget what it's in response to, namely the the coming judgment of God and, and the destruction of Babylon. Listen, chapter 19, verse 1. And I heard, and this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immortality. immorality. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke of her, the smoke from her, excuse me, goes up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. So, there we have it. The saints rejoicing over the destruction of God's enemies is not merely an Old Testament theme. It runs throughout the New Testament as well, all the way to the end of the story. And I only gave you two examples, and there's many more. So what are we supposed to do with this? It's it's not something we often devote much thought to. It's it's uncomfortable. But if if it's in our own scriptures, that means it's there not to make us turn away in horror or embarrassment, but to humbly submit ourselves to it and to be taught by it. Now, here's the reason I think it makes us so uncomfortable. The Jews in Esther's time who rejoiced in the slaughter of their enemies, the psalmists who cried out for divine vengeance against their persecutors, and the rest of the Old Testament saints petitioned for this kind of justice from God precisely because they believed that they were the ones who had been wronged. They believed themselves to be the victims of injustice. And in many cases, they were right. But the picture of justice they had, listen to this, the picture of justice that they had in their minds that took up their imaginations was that they themselves were the plaintiffs. And that their enemies were the accused defendants. And they believed that 
If only their case could make it to the court and be heard by the judge, then the defendants would be prosecuted and sentenced. In that way, the saints of old had none of our modern squeamishness about asking, or in many cases demanding, justice from God. But we Christians, on the other hand, when we think about the judgment of God against his enemies, we more often think of ourselves not as the injured plaintiff awaiting vindication, but rather the condemned defendant awaiting sentencing. And we've been taught to think that way in many places in the New Testament, like, for example, Ephesians 2, where Paul emphatically tells us that prior to the coming of Christ, we all were enemies of God and therefore just recipients of his righteous anger. Like, that's what we've been taught, and rightly so. And so for us to take up this sort of rejoicing posture of the Jews in exile or the psalmists, it feels like awfully presumptuous at best or dangerous at worst. We, as a rule, cry out for mercy, not for judgment. And again, we're right to do so. Don't mishear me. But we find ourselves in a conundrum as a result of this. What are we to learn then from this last part of the story in Esther? What are we to learn from the celebration of God's judgment from our brothers and sisters who lived during that time. And it seems to me that God is teaching us this, that we too, even in the era of Christ, we too must learn to rejoice in the judgment of God. Let me explain. The most basic tenet of our faith has to do with the judgment of God, right? Yes, we were once God's enemies, and, and we had brought upon ourselves his wrathful anger against our sins. But on the day that we showed up to court, we found something altogether astonishing and unexpected. We saw that the son of the judge, who ought to have been the prosecutor making the watertight arguments against our, for our destruction, against our sins, instead he mounted the steps and sat himself in the dock where we ought to have been sitting. And there we saw the judge pronounce the crimes that we had committed against the innocent man in the dock who had not committed them. And then the awful judgment that should have come upon us was pronounced by the judge against him. And when the judge articulated the sentence of death, the son bowed his head in submission, walked to the place of his execution and bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And when we see Christ upon the cross, what we are seeing in that moment is the substitutionary atonement for the crimes that should have sent us to the place of execution. So, when I say that we need to rejoice in the judgment of God, that's the first judgment I mean. We must rejoice that Christ was judged and condemned and sentenced and executed in our place for our crimes. That's the first judgment we must rejoice in. Jesus Christ, 
was judged and executed in the place of his enemies. And for all who believe that his blood is sufficient to pay for their sins, then we rejoice in the judgment of God because it has made us citizens of his kingdom, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And that is worth rejoicing over. And I think, if I had to guess, all of us would readily accept that admonition. But how can we rejoice in the future judgment of God against his enemies? For to take the Bible seriously, then we must confess that this reality is still to come. That's what we just read in the book of Revelation. That's what we just read from the mouth of Jesus himself. I think the solution to the puzzle is this. We've got to remember what judgment means. The purpose of judgment is to do justice. The purpose of judgment is to put everything that has been wrong back to rights. Think of all the tears that have been shed in the history of our world. Think of all the tears that have been shed in the history of your own life. Think of the hatred that has inspired genocide and and the millions of bodies that have been deposited into the earth because one race hated another. Think of all the wicked men and women who have abused one another and abused children or sold their children into slavery. Or think of all the ruthless dictators who, instead of serving their people, trod their citizens under their feet, imposing all kinds of suffering and disgrace and death upon them, and not even for a righteous cause, but just so that they can maintain power. Think of all the wars that have been unjustly waged and all the suffering that has caused. Think of all the ways, large and small, that we have found to be cruel to one another and to inflict suffering upon one another. And when you think of the world in those terms, it is a place from which we long for justice to be done. And when Christ comes, he has promised to come in judgment of all those evils, to mend every tear and to set things back to rights. And now here at the end of the sermon is where we finally get to our text for this morning. Let me read it again by way of reminder. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with a multitude of his brothers. Four, he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people. The book ends with Mordecai, God's chosen man, to rule over his people, 